My Bible has as a chapter heading for our text today, Final Instructions and Benediction. As Paul nears the conclusion of this letter, he addresses some of the essentials of life in a local church after recognizing the importance of living in the light of the truth and not in darkness. And here's the image that I want you to think about today. What comes next after baptism? Because baptism isn't the final stage. It's not the culminating act of our salvation. We can't just live life the way we want and then proclaim, well, I've been baptized. No. Baptism is only the beginning. What's next? And that's a big part of why I've chosen to title this sermon, Life After Life. Throughout his life, And consistently in his writing, Paul maintained high ideals for the church. And that's us, the people. According to his characterization of the church at the beginning of this letter, back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he said the church is to be a community. A community loved and chosen by God. Drawing its very life from God and manifesting this divine life in the Christian graces of a functioning faith, a love that labors, and an enduring hope. Come on, computer, wake up. Well, No. It's showing. Oh well. Noteless. In the second half of this chapter, the verses that are our text for today, Paul uses repeatedly the language of family for the church. Five different times he refers to the word brothers, adelphoi. And by that, he means brothers and sisters, the brotherhood. The church is to be a family. And when the church isn't acting like a family, then it needs to decide what's going on. What's wrong? Where have we failed? Because the reality is... Let me try one other thing here. The reality is... Is that... There is a need. And that need is, I believe... That we need to understand... That our mutual relationship... Our mutual relationship affects our mutual behavior. And when our mutual relationship affects our mutual behavior, what we have is something that determines our community witness. 
This shouldn't come as a surprise to you. For the five years that we have been here, I have heard from people who no longer attend here more details than I wish I knew about all of the different dysfunctional divisions that have occurred in the history of this church. So let me repeat what I said again. Our mutual relationship affects our mutual behavior and that determines our community witness. For example, Paul's emphasis on relationships was, was emphasized twice in chapter 4. As he proclaimed, first of all, in chapter 4, verse 9, we're to be practicing brotherly love. And then again in verse 18, we're to be encouraging one another with words of hope. And then I believe that verse 11 that we concluded with last Sunday, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I believe that's a transitional verse that summarizes what he said in the first half of the chapter and in the book, the letter. But it also leads into what he's going to admonish us in this final section prior to his closing benediction. So let's look at what he writes. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word this morning. Did you notice how Paul began this section of verses? It was an admonition to learn how to live in peace. And such an emphasis on peace isn't unique to this letter. It's one of Paul's reoccurring themes. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see, Paul's admitting we're not going to be able to be at peace with everybody. But he says, as far as it depends on you, don't you be the one that is causing the discord. 
2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, what this should make clear to us is that Paul repeats this emphasis because it was and it is a necessary emphasis. Disagreements that rise to the level of discord is not impossible within a family, which we as the church are called to be. I mean, you understand that, right? But it's certainly incongruous. It's inappropriate. It's unsuitable. And it's a bad witness. We are, in Christ, parts of one body. We have the same Spirit who dwells within us. And Paul has just stressed how we are called to the same glorious future. It is the fact that we belong which serves as the basis as to how we should be behaving. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul reminds us of the value, the great cost of peace, since as he writes, Jesus purchased our peace, that he has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, listen, by the blood of the cross. We're to seek peace. That's what Peter writes in his first letter. He quotes Psalm 34 when he writes, Whoever desires to love life and see good days should turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I was reading an article out of a medical journal from the University of Texas. Not a Christian school. But you know what they said? They said that there is a direct correlation between people who live earnestly and faithfully the Christian life in a devotional way, praying frequently and reading their Bibles with longevity of life and happiness. And here in this letter to the Christians at Thessalonica, that peace, he says, is to be practiced. Even as we warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, and help the weak. Secondly, Paul emphasizes the importance of learning to live with patience. This is another emphasis that's very important. Uh, chapter 5, the second part of verse 14 and verse 15. Be patient with them all. The word Paul uses carries with it the meaning of being long-suffering. Not giving way. And this one, man, I spoke to myself this week as I was reading back through and preparing my notes. Not giving way to a short or a quick temper toward those who fail. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Patience is a characteristic of love. 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. By the way, 
Did you notice that as Paul singles out these three particular groups whom they're to care for? Patience is the essential characteristic by which we can deal with each group. The idol, who in Proverbs is compared to a sluggard, refusing to work and therefore being a burden on the rest of the body. The timid, who refuse to take a public stand on almost anything. And the weak, who simply need to allow the Spirit by means of grace to help them, according to Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His mind. And in 1 Peter, to give them the strength that God supplies. When I'm strong, it's not because of Chauncey. Chauncey wants to take the weak way out, the easy way out. Chauncey wants to flare up and, and get loud. And when I'm strong, it's because I am submitting and allowing God and His Spirit to work through me. That's why I'm trying really hard to do those pauses before I say anything, before I do anything, before I respond in any way to just pause and count to ten and try to think what, what would be the best thing to do in this situation. See, what Paul's giving us here is a recipe for maintaining harmony and peace among God's people. And at times, in fact, most of the time, it won't be easy. Not only is patience a Christian virtue, but from the Old Testament all the way through the New, patience is a divine attribute. In Romans, again, Paul will ask those who are straying from the correct way, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So if patience is the first ingredient in this recipe for maintaining peace and harmony, the second recipe is somehow learning to cultivate kindness. In verse 15, he writes, Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The New International Version, if you have that in front of you, always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. The New English Bible, aim at doing the best you can. And I really like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. Look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring it out. By beginning that sentence, verse 15, see that no one or see to it, Paul is pointing out, and we need to remember, that he's no longer talking to the leadership, although they, of course, have a vital role in terms of the pastoral oversight of the church. Paul's pointing out that the whole congregation, every one of us, has a responsibility to care for each other as sisters and as brothers. To give appropriate support. 
encouragement or admonition to the church's problem children and to ensure that all of the members follow the teaching of Jesus, cultivating patience, renouncing retaliation, and pursuing kindness. John Stott, who I've referred to frequently through this series because I've been reading his commentary on the pastoral epistles. He says it's a beautiful vision of the local church as a community not only of mutual comfort and encouragement, but of mutual forbearance and service as well. The final ingredient for living at peace is living, learning to live a life of worship. You know, a casual reading of our text, these verses might not lead you to think that this section relates to the nature and conduct of public worship. But there are clear indications that that's primarily what Paul has in mind. To begin with, all of the verbs in this section are plural, not singular. They describe our collective and public rather than our individual and private Christian duties. Secondly, the prophesying of verse 20. I, I've shared with you many times that when prophecy is used in the New Testament, in fact in the Bible, it primarily is not tell, talking about telling the future. Over 85% of the time it has to do with taking God's Word and applying it to a present current situation. So that's obviously public. And there in verse 27, when He charges them, makes them take an oath, makes them promise to read that letter in the presence of everybody, Public, corporate, the church as a body. And so I think we need to see then that that suggests that rejoicing, praying, thanksgiving, all of those things mentioned there in verses 16 to 18, just like in Ephesians 5, just like in Colossians 3, are also meant to be expressed when the congregation assembles. We're to be giving our thanks and rejoicing. We're to be praying together. One of the teachers of the past, an author, Dr. Ralph Martin, goes even further. And he says that he considers these three short, very sharp commands to read like the headings of a church service. Public worship is a vital part of the life of the local church. Hebrews 10. Verse 24. Remember what the author wrote? Do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. But join and encourage one another all the more as the day approaches. The consistent consistent teaching of the Bible 
is that worship is not something you do as an individual by yourself before God. Worship is something you do with other brothers and sisters together as a body of believers. Now that doesn't mean that you can't go for a walk. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you what. I posted a picture here, I think it was a week ago now already. But as I turned the corner down there by the conservation club, there was a beautiful doe standing there looking right at me. And she stood long enough for me to get my phone up and take her picture. And you want to talk about enjoying God's creation. I walked on down past the lake, turned the corner, and there on the left-hand side was a little red fox. Now, he didn't stay long enough for me to get his picture or her picture. There's no question that we can worship God. In fact, isn't that what the writer of Romans, Paul, said in the first couple of chapters when he said God has displayed Himself and we're without excuse? It's even essential to our identity. And most churches, and I'm going to include us in this, most churches could afford to give more time and more trouble to the preparation of the worship service. Making sure that from the call to worship to the final closing song, there is a unity of message in what we say and what we do. It's a mistake to imagine that freedom and form necessarily exclude each other. Or that the Holy Spirit is the friend of freedom in such a way as to be the enemy of form. My sermon plans are in Kay's hands for weeks and sometimes months in advance. But I want you to know that it's not done without consideration of the lead and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Before I ever started this series on Thessalonians, one of the questions that I asked both Sydney and both Kay was where do you think we should go next? Based on what's going on in the church. Where should we head? And I gave them a couple of ideas that I was thinking about. That is allowing the Holy Spirit... I, Come on! Can the Holy Spirit only act spontaneously at a second causing you to do something uh, as a burst out? I love Philip's little book. Simply titled, I think your God's too small if that's what you believe. In terms of the early church, I believe that that is demonstrated, that guidance, that need for bringing things together to really emphasize a message by the early church's use of the Psalms and by the fragments of Christian hymns and Psalms and, and creeds and confessions that are embedded right in our New Testament itself. Paul issues four instructions with regard to worship. And they lay down for us four essential ingredients. Rejoice always. Pray continually or pray without ceasing. One of the, fam fam one of the 
famous, often used memory verses at church camp where you can get credit and points for memorizing verses in a Bible. Or Jesus wept. Now if you can get credit by memorizing that, boy, those are quick points. And bear with me for just a second. That means we need to be living a life of prayer. It doesn't mean that prayer is only when we're on our knees with our heads bowed. Please, if you feel the need to pray while you're driving, pray, but don't get on your knees and bow your head. Again, John Stott. We should be praying for our own church members far and near. For the church throughout the world, its leaders, its adherence to the truth of God's revelation, its holiness, unity, and mission. For our nation, parliament, and or government. And for a just, free, compassionate, and participatory society. For world mission, especially for places and people resistant to the gospel. For peace, justice, and environmental stewardship. And for the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless, and the sick. I love that because it helped me realize how my prayers sometimes are too focused. That there's a whole lot of other stuff I need to be praying for. I've reset the alarm on my clock. It's twice a day now instead of four times a day. It's in the morning at 9.38 and it's in the evening at 9.38. And right now, when my phone alarm goes off, I'm praying the prayer of Matthew 9.38. Jesus said, pray that the Lord will send harvesters, workers, into the harvest fields. Do you sometimes wonder if the slow or even lack of progress toward world peace, world equity, world evangelism is not possibly due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. You remember the words of 2 Chronicles 7.14? Beautiful song. I wish my voice range was such that I could still sing it like I used to do when I was younger. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God's Word. And we certainly can't forget the importance of the third and fourth. Giving thanks and listening to the Word of God. In those commands of verses 19 and 20, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. We're given clear commands, it's imperatives in the Greek, to listen to whatever messages purport to come from God and not to despise or reject them until... We've tested them. And we can only test things we hear by knowing God's Word. I've had people say to me, well, you know, and, and they'll go into all kinds of things. 
One lady very meaningfully, from her heart, said, well, you know Jesus was married. Mm, don't think so. Doesn't fit with the Scriptures. The facts that were, in fact, used to come up with that have been proven very late and false. We need to know God's Word. Because you know what? It really doesn't matter what we feel or what we think if it disagrees with God's Word. I've shared this with you before. It happened just recently. Often I have people say, I know what the Bible says, but I feel. No. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what the Bible says. So here's my challenge for today. I'm going to read that benediction one more time. Starting with verse 23. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body... What do you think Paul's alluding to there? When Jesus was asked, well, what's the greatest command? What did He say? To love the Lord your God with what? Your heart, your body, your soul, your strength. That your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. You don't have to do that at the end of church. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here's my challenge. It comes right here from the benediction that I read. We need to be living in such a way to be living a life that displays, in fact, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. That people will see that in all that we say and do. Let's pray.